Yo, yo, yo. Easy. Good evening. Hello, John. Just opening a beer. Get yourself a beer? No, not not today. What have you got? I've got. Uh, I really, I've, that's, I really want one, but I'm not. <laughs> I've got a, a 1906 black coupage, which sounds like a car, uh, but it's a Spanish beer. Um, it's like a, it's a very dark, like a Modelo Negro type beer. That's very nice. Very dark and rich and quite chocolatey. How strong is that? So when I knock my socks off. Maybe seven point two. <clears throat> End of this podcast could be interesting. Welcome to North v South a podcast about, but not about design. This is episode fifty six of an unknown number of podcast episodes. I'm Rob Turpin, and uh, John Elliman is at the other end of Skype. Good evening, John. Hello. <laughs> How how's your day been? Uh, yeah, really boring. Oh, mine has too. Yeah. Mm. I had to translate a website into Polish. I mean, my uh, hand has, mine hasn't been that boring. Uh, <laughs> that, that it's very, yeah, tedious. It, it is when you don't know Polish. Mm. You don't know where you, anything's meant to go. Do you know where all the weird uh, little accents and things are on your keyboard now? No, I didn't do any typing. It was all copy and paste. Uh, but um, yeah, it was very tedious. Mm. <laughs> I've been putting the um, magazine template guidelines uh, together. All right. For an underwear brand, which um, isn't as ex- ex- exciting as you might think. Right. No, again, tedious and repetitive. Do they call but, the magazine yeah. Underwired? No. Some tumbleweed. Yeah, wow. That really went past the window there. <laughs> Sorry, try that one again when I've had a bit more beer. Wired. I was doing a wired I know. Underwear. I oh, know. God. So um, there's my first edit. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, so um apart from your Polish business, was, was that taking up your entire day? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Swimming, just, dog walking. No, I haven't done anything. I haven't got up. I severely underestimated how much there was to do. So what's the rest of your week been like? Oh, it's really tedious, actually. <laughs> Has it been a nuts and bolts week? I get those, you know, when you... I'm going on holiday next week, and so I haven't taken any projects on. So I've got that gnawing, you know, no work fear of getting back. And then I've just had lots and lots of, you know, tying loose ends up, which mm. are just really, really dull. So, um, yeah... It's been a, been a bit of a grind, to be honest. And the weather's gone all horrible, hasn't it? It's like winter it has been, out yeah. there. Uh, well, I was going to I was going to ask you a question. Where are you going on holiday, John? France. Uh-huh. Whereabouts? North, south, east, west? Uh, north-ish, the La Vendée, which is bottom of Brittany. Okay. Never been there before. Have Very you? Very nice. No, I haven't, apart from Paris, I haven't spent any time in France at all. Really? Uh, or snowboarding. Um, but yeah, I've, I haven't visited France at all, apart from Paris and snowboarding. My parents have been to, where do they go? They've got some friends who live in Dinard or Dinon, which are two very places close together. I can't remember which one they go to, but that's very beautiful. Um, yeah, 
Well, I hope you have a lovely time. Yeah, it's going to be good. Camping, well. Glamping? Well, no, it's um, it's in a mobile home. Okay. A um, little, little walk to the beach. Very nice. Perfect. Yeah, I hope you're lovely. No, that's it, really. What have you been doing? Uh, working today in Shoreditch, um, but working from home on illustration stuff for the rest of the week. Had a we had a big wedding at the weekend in near Greenwich, a place called Trinity Boy Wharf, which is um, a lighthouse um, on kind of a weird little peninsula in the Thames, sort of I guess at the entrance to all the old dockyards, um, and now it's kind of an event space and art centre. And it was a really fantastic place, and it's the home of Longplayer.org. Do you know that? No, I've never heard of that. What's that? So in 1999, on December 31st, a piece of music started playing called Long Player uh, by a guy called Jem Finer. And it's, uh, I think it was funded by, a, what's it called, Art Station or Art Angel. Um, it was kind of a millennium project. And it's a, a musical composition that's going to last a thousand years without repeating. Right. Um, and it's one of the first kind of, weird internet-y kind of art things that I ever heard about. And I'd almost completely forgotten about it. And we were in this event space at Trinity Boy Wharf setting up this wedding, and there was this kind of weird music in the background, and it's very just sort of tones and chimes and things, very relaxing. You know, you could meditate to it. And I thought, you know, that sounds like long player. Um, And it was. So it was really nice to kind of, be there and hear it sort of being pumped out live. You can hear, listen to it on the internet if you go to longplayer.org. You can uh, you can give it a listen. A wonderful little project. I really liked it. So it was nice. Um, nice to see that. There's a really interesting sort of space around Trinity um, Wharf as well. There's lots, kind of lots going on. There's a couple of little art studios. There's a light ship that's been converted into a recording studio, a couple of nice cafes. There's the London, the Royal School of Drawing is based there. Um, yeah, it's nice. Wow, never never been there, never even seen it before. I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Um, so we did that, uh, and I've been playing with my new iPad Pro, John. Oh, oh yeah. You, yeah. You've, you've dipped. I did. You, uh, you tempted me, and so I... I took the plunge. Oh, so it's my fault if you don't like it then? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, fair yeah. enough. Sending you the invoice. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's great. So I got the new iPad Pro 10.5 inch, uh, and I got an Apple Pencil, um, which has rolled off my desk about 50 times already. So I've attached a clip from one of my other pens onto it, which has helped. Um, but I've been using Procreate. You use Procreate as well, don't you? I have, yeah. But, yep. Yeah. So it's um, really cool. It's there's you know there's a big learning curve just in the kind of general digital drawing thing for me because I've really not done any at all before. And then there's there's kind of a procreate learning curve because you're used to how Photoshop works and it's although it does lots of the same things, it does them in different ways. And then there's this whole kind of drawing on glass thing, which is is possibly the biggest thing um, 
to get past for me. It's not so much of an issue if I'm doing digital colouring, <clears throat> but if I'm sketching, I really miss the just the slight resistance that you get with paper. So I might have to try out one of the screen, the kind of matte screens you can get. You know, the like a film that you stick yeah. to this thing it just gives you a bit of texture have you tried one of those well no well i've bought one and then i've never applied it oh. um I, do, I, I haven't felt the need to yeah uh, well, i haven't done yeah. you know maybe I, i'll just get used to it i did a lot of drawing at the beginning and then i haven't really done a huge amount since which mm-hmm. <laughs> really annoyingly but um i do use it for note taking uh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff but yeah <clears throat> i do like it there's been a lot there's been a, a lot of bad reviews out um this week on the mainstream sort of, um, you know, digital media, mm. um, <clears throat> just saying, you know, it's not, it's not a computer as Apple are saying it is, but I don't think they are. I just think it's a new device that will appeal to a new, you know, sort of level of, of people that, you know, I can imagine a bunch of account managers being armed yeah. with these yeah, pro, pro machines. It's got absolutely everything they need. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, uh as with much that Apple do, it's. I think they've opened up enough of the kind of software and the, the capabilities of it to developers now that it's like, you know, just let's see what the developers can do with it. And they always kind of come up with creative things, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, but you're, enjoy- you're enjoying it, yeah? I am. I think it's fantastic. The screen is out of this world. Um, so it's got the, they've upped the refresh rate on the screen. I think they've doubled the refresh rate and it's, you know, deeper blacks and brighter colours and it's staggering. It's um really, really beautiful screen. Um yeah, it's a beautiful bit of kit. And ten inch that's is that large enough for you to draw on? Does it feel well, too yeah, small? Because, well no, because a lot of the drawing I do is on A five anyway. Oh, okay. Um because you can <clears> zoom. I've, I've actually that's something that's come really quite easily, just kind of zooming and pinching to kind of twirl the, the paper as you're drawing on drawing on it um has that almost feels like second nature already mm. it's just the bite yeah which i might you know might just be something i'll get used to so we shall see but um yeah very exciting mm. Well, I've um. What else have I been doing? But culturally, not really a huge amount. I've read a couple of books. Um, yeah, I, I'm continuing my uh, my trawl through dystopian novels of the yeah. uh, of the latter half of last century. I've just re- reread a book called "The Death of Grass" by a chap called John Christopher. Have you heard of him? No, I'm <laughs> sure I've heard of the book though. Unless yeah, he wrote, he wrote um. He's a bit John Wyndham light. Uh, mm-hmm. He wrote a. Uh, a series of novels about the tripods, which was a, I think oh, yeah. it was a TV series. Well, it was BBC Sunday evening, thing, yeah. wasn't it? It's great. <clears throat> and the death of grass is just, you know, as as it says on the tin, really, all the grass dies, everyone starves to death, and it's about a family trying to get to a um a, a farm uh, in the Yorkshire Moors. I see. Yeah, from London. It's it's good. It's really it's yeah. written in 1958. It's brutal. I mean, really violent. <laughs> it was quite surprising how violent it was. Um, and now I'm reading one that was recommended to me. I don't know where I got it from. It's a sci-fi book called Pervane. Have you heard of that? I haven't. No. Again, it's a um, 
It's not, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure if it's dystopian, but it's a, a an alternative history set in 1968 in the Dorset um, countryside. And um, Elizabeth I was assassinated. And so England never um, moved away from Catholicism. Wow. And, and it's a kind of history where all progress has been stimmed by papal control over uh, intellectual property. Wow! Yeah, I do love a bit of all the history. Yeah, and it, and it's it, every every chapter is a is a different story set in the same world of yeah. Dor- of Dorset, which is a place I love, and it's kind of like Thomas Hardy. Uh, they they even speak in. <laughs> um, you know, the the court language is still Norman French yeah. and uh, they speak in Latin. Um, and it, yeah, it's yeah, it's really, really interesting. Oh, I'm enjoying cool. that. I think that could be a really good TV series. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the, one of the books I've read this week uh, is a bit alt history as well. It's um, Stephen Baxter's, the first of Stephen Baxter's NASA trilogy of sci-fi books called um, Voyage. Uh, and it's about... Uh, NASA's first manned voyage to Mars and it kind of takes up <clears throat> at the end of uh, 1969 beginning of 1970 um, so we've landed on the moon and there's been another mission to the moon and now people are starting to get bored with it and Spiro Agnew who I think was the vice president at the time um kind of has this this idea to for a manned mission to mars so it's all about how that affects nasa's spaceflight program so there's no space shuttle because all the money gets plowed into just upgrading the saturn V rockets for this mars mission um but it's good it's very hard sci-fi it's very technical it's a bit like um uh what's the tom wolf the right stuff yeah and there's another one called fire on the moon Okay. Um, which I've read and I can't remember who wrote it. It's this really, really technical. It's, you know, it tells you all the kind of checklists that the astronauts go through all the time. Um, but that makes it more seem more like you're reading a, a factual document. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, <clears> and the, the next one is, um, doesn't follow on exactly because it, it kind of takes up an alt history a different point from us. It's after a shuttle disaster. Um, and that kind of grounds the shuttles and they're going to plan for a manned mission to Titan. Um, well, yeah, good. Is he famous for other work? Cause I don't, I've never heard of him. Stephen Baxter. Yeah. He's, he's one of our, one of Britain's biggest selling sci-fi authors. Oh, I knew that. Um, so, and, 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 uh, is he worth reading? Yeah, the, I've only read a couple of his others, so I don't really know how this compares because it really does stand out as as being, you know, like a, you get a procedural cop book that that kind of takes you very specifically through how a crime is solved. It's a little bit like that. It's it's not the most exciting book, but it's really interesting. So, uh, really, his other stuff, thanks, you really sold it to me. His other stuff <laughs> is, is more, you know, traditional, big idea sci-fi stuff. Um, I think this trilogy stands out as something very different. So, enough of that. Have we got some news this week, John? You've got lots of news. Oh, um, yeah, but I'll, I will uh, edit as I go. Uh, Dangerous Visions 
is a return to Radio 4 of their dystopian future series. I don't know if you oh. caught last year's. Um, it was really I good. But it's going to include Fahrenheit 451 this year. So, um, yeah, stay tuned. And cool. They, they call it a gripping new season of radio dramas exploring contemporary takes on future dystopias. Brilliant. So, I do love uh, a good BBC radio series. Yeah, they're really good. Uh, second thing, shall I go on quickly? Yeah. Um, Southbank, uh, a rebrand story. We haven't done, we haven't seen any branding really coming out for ages. Yeah, I've got one as well. Um, yeah, and funnily enough, it involves. This is Studio North who did the co-op last mm-hmm. year. Um, they've rebranded Southbank's Centre, um, which. Uh, sort of incorporates a load of buildings on the Thames, on the south side of the Thames, if you don't know London at all. But um, it's gone for rather a, uh, an, I'd say, a New York style of graphic design. Um, I, I like it. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's tidier than it was. Um, yeah, and, it and, is. And, and uh, it's a little Paula Cher, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think that? I think that, um, you know, it's a little bit unfair for them to say that they've cleaned it all up when the last branding was pretty old i'd say over 10 years and they are creating so much stuff there that i imagine the brand has moved on a long Mm. way and become rather messy um but it's less smudgy and more focused Uh, it's yeah like you say it's very very new york yeah it's quite like that it's weird i hadn't actually read read the article on it i'd seen it out and about on twitter and i wasn't um struck by the the logo type at all, but actually kind of seeing it in use as with a lot of these things. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty nice. Yeah. I love, I love the typeface. Um, I do, I do feel the typeface is like, you know, a designer's wet dream though, isn't it? It's, um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah. Where, where, what project can I squeeze this one in? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure whether it is entirely appropriate, but it, I, I don't know. It's, it definitely gives it, um, gives the industrial architecture when you see the signage um, yeah. a, a bit more, uh, uh, it makes it a bit more crisp. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, and and who who can't love Indian bit yellow? More, bit more sort of confident yeah. looking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's definitely Paul share. Um, yes. Um, well, I'll skip straight to my uh, branding news, which is that Wolf Ollins have redesigned, uh, rebranded Hive. So Hive is British Gas's smart home brand. Um, with its kind of smart heating and stuff. And I think they they want to branch out into a lot more kind of consumer home electronic stuff. So they've done a rebrand and I don't really like the type, but I love the little kind of beehive um, form that they've got. It looks beautiful uh, animated. Um, but what I do like is the way that they've used the colors and they've used the kind of the shape of, of the, the, the beehive is kind of like this five five lines really that kind of with a kink in the middle that suggests the form of a beehive and they've they've used those forms in different colors just to on their packaging and on their web app and advertising and stuff um and i think it looks really nice i think it looks really smart and clean um and very modern what do you think yeah, it's the first time I've seen it. Um, I like 
I like the offset kind of ad ads that yeah. you know that I think they work. They're really nice and tight. Um, and the animation, yeah, it's fine. It's slightly offset, and I, so I don't. It sort of it, it when it's rotating, it's kind of yes. like a. It's like the Michelin Man <laughs> sliced up, yeah, um, but it, it's it kind of it's kind of off center, isn't it? So it's so it's a bit wobbly when it goes round. Yeah, um, as if you had a circle off of the center yeah, of it going yeah. round, um, like it's on a cam. Yeah, uh, which I don't know why. Why is it? What, what's what does that mean? Is that just is is that is it a beehive? Yeah. Well, that's where it comes from originally, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think it would be cool if the interface on the actual unit was, you know, had that animation on it, but it, it's mm. not, is it? This is a, this is definitely a skinning of the branding. Yes. The products haven't been redesigned. No. But yeah, good work. Um, um, with uh, that, I will jump to something else, um, which is kind of smart home type thing. And it's a it's a kick. We haven't done a Kickstart for a while. It's a product on Kickstarter called Aomi Mini, and it is a uh, a, a nightlight. <laughs> <You light. what? laughs> it's a nightlight, John. It's a but it's a Bluetooth nightlight, so it can um, it can notify you when you get email. Oh, that's good. Isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that what you want a nightlight for? <laughs> so uh, the exact sort of internet events you'd like a nightlight to inform you of is, of course, entirely up to you. A few examples offered by Almi include weather alerts, Wi-Fi is down notifications, and smart home integration. Why? Why would you want that? I don't know. What, why? It's past its funding goal, anyway. What what do you want to be notified in the middle of the night about? I don't know. Unless you're a doctor unless, or something. Unless the house oh. is on fire. Hmm. But, you know, you have fire alarms for that, not night lights. Yeah. <sighs> Very strange. It's yeah. one of those things where someone's designed a night light and then thought, oh, how can we add something extra to this? Well, uh, yeah, from the sublime to the ridiculous, um, my my one's on Indiegogo, which is, um, I guess, yeah. I guess a similar uh, crowdsourcing um, yeah. platform. Um, this is called Love. Have you seen this thing? Does it popped up in your Facebook feed? Because that's where it came in, where I saw it. Um, no. The what? world's first intelligent turntable for playing <laughs> records, <laughs> right? And the copy, I mean, it's just worth spending 10 minutes on their website just <laughs> laughing to yourself about how ridiculous this is. Because uh, it's obviously been... You know, the product's been made and then they're thinking, you know, how can we possibly sell this heap of crap <laughs> to an audience? So um, so some of the quotes are, um, yeah, apart from it being the world's first intelligent turntable. So basically it's a record player, but the record player sits on top of the record. Um, I remember Ronco or somebody like that selling something similar yeah, to this in the mid 70s. It's, it's not a brand new concept, is it? No, it makes out that it's kind of floating above your record and playing it. But actually, you've got to have a bass underneath it um, and you've got to change the bass for the size of the record. You know, it's yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so basically it just moves uh, rotates over the top of your record, probably ruining your record as it sure. heaves its huge weight over the top of top of your vinyl. You're loving, you know, your three hundred gram, nearly <laughs> twenty a million, quid LP, a million dollars. Um, it's uh, and then one of its other things is it maintains the intimacy and quality of vinyl records, but adds modern day <laughs> smart features while keeping the crackles and pops. <laughs> Go and get it. 
grip, Amazing. people. Get a grip. I don't know what's intelligent about it, though. No, Just the well, fact the that you can turn it, it on and off by an app. But how is it going to be warm? How is the sound going to be warm when it's converting it digitally? How, how yeah it's not it's just going to sound rubbish yeah. um yeah and and the battery only lasts 15 albums so you've you know i mean ridiculous yeah it says it's ultra portable as as you know because the lp is something that you get I'm out forever in the of, carrying my yeah LP. i'm always playing mine in the car <laughs> <laughs> so i think they could design something easier than that oh god have you yeah. seen Sony are about to start making vinyl records again after 30 years? Really? Yeah. So the market for vinyl has picked up enough that the big boys are coming back to play. Oh, I bought well, some vinyl. never I, stopped, I, did they? I bought some vinyl this week. Did you? What did you buy? Radiohead. Uh, what, <laughs> okay t- Computer? Yeah, they just re-released. I haven't spent 100 quid on it, which is the price of their uh, their new one, but they've remastered their... Uh, yeah, twenty years ago came out. Let's that not album. let's not get into Radiohead. We've discussed no. this on Twitter, haven't we? Uh, <clears throat> an incomplete Atlas of Stones, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a taxonomic documenting of Japanese tsunami warning stones. How cool does that sound? Mm. So it's a, a, a kind of a, a university study uh, which has has become a a book. Um, so Japanese tsunami warning stones are these stones of varying sizes that are dotted around the coast of Japan. Some of them show where previous floods have been. Some mark kind of where, you know, everything is safe above this point. Some mark, you know, don't build below this point. Um, and uh, someone did their thesis uh, Elise, uh, landscape architect Elise Hunchuk spent the summer of 2015 travelling around um, part of Japan's coast documenting all the stones she could find and just uh, put them in a really peaceful looking book the kind of satellite photographs, maps uh, diagrams before and after satellite um, photographs um, before and after the 2011 tsunami um, I just think it's Fascinating. It's one of those bizarre worlds that you could lose yourself in that you'd never give a second thought to. It's one of those things you don't know exists until you hear about it. And then it's like, wow, well, of course, there must be something like that. And um, yeah, so it's kind of got everything. Um, I love really maps, books, Japan. Great. Are, they, are these old? Are these old ancient stones? Or Some are, they- are old. I, I don't think old. Old. I think they go back to the nineteenth century at their oldest, and some are much more modern. That's brilliant. And it's a book, is it? Can you buy this book, or is it? Yes. Yeah. It is. Uh, it is a book. Yes. Ah. Oh, I'd like that. That's that sounds. Okay, yeah. I'll put that. Um, <laughs> put that on your Christmas list. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, any more news there, Jonathan? Oh, I've got yeah, a, a sort of a dual, dual bit of news. Um, I was reading uh, that I think uh, last year, um, Nintendo um, re-released the NES, which was their mm-hmm. original um, games console cartridge yep. system, um, and they re- they released a mini one of it, um, and it sold out very very quickly and. Uh, one of the problems that Nintendo have is scaling 
production and they haven't made any new ones but they've just announced the super nes uh, mini which is the snes the snes yeah um something that i i absolutely loved that uh, console i think it's the first one i bought myself um i bought a second hand one and uh it's just it's just a classic um and i'm get, really you can get your violins out again from from last week's episode because i never had a mini console either oh no but they're not they, they're only mini for now they're only yeah. being they, you know i think it's got 20 games on it or something like that um, so how does it work i think does you just look? plug it in your telly i guess oh okay. it's just like literally fixed um yeah fixed apps i don't think you can download to it or anything like that but it's only 50 quid or so it's not nothing yeah. major um but a very cute little christmas present there for somebody who likes some um, nostalgic game playing yeah um, and then the other one that was announced which is really surprising is atari who um them of the uh of the veneered console from the 70s the v2000 2600 and also um the jaguar which was their last effort oh, God, at, yeah. at, um, console, which I bought with a mate um, when I first moved to London, and we had uh, we only bought it for Doom because we wanted to play Doom. <laughs> it was so expensive, um, bit of a failure, but great, great, great console. Um, they've been missing for a long time, so I guess that's over twenty years now. Um, but they've they've got a little microsite up, which is uh, www.atarebox.com, with a very uh, enticing intriguing looking video um of a slow-mo so, going over a console that has actually got veneer wooden veneer on the outside of <laughs> so it someone bought the rights to do this it's not atari don't exist anymore as a company no they do they? they make games yeah no they, oh, they? Th- yeah and the ceo or uh, i think it's the ceo has announced that yes they are he's confirmed that they are working on a console right. so yeah it could be very very exciting mm. or interesting anyway i'm not a big games player these days but uh i just thought it was uh, i thought it was cool that um two old uh consoles are sort of or two old bear moths of the of the console game are, yeah. uh, are rising up to to the surface again be interesting to see where they go with it mm. intriguing yeah oh i wanted to say um farewell to uh michael bond died yes. yesterday very sad creator of paddington bear was writing all the way up to the to his uh his last breath um, well, I don't know if that's literally true. I mean, <laughs> you kind of uh, like to think so. Yeah. Um, or perhaps he just popped his pen down, had a marmalade sandwich and then fell asleep. It's, uh, it, it's, it's very sad to hear that. And people have been leaving pots of marmalade at Paddington station today where yeah. there's a, a little very statue. Touchy. There's a statue, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. And Blowers has retired from cricket, but nobody else will be interested in that. No, it's sad. It's going to miss, uh, his rambling. Yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of commentating has has got less and less relevant <laughs> as he he struggles to work out which plays which. But um, but he's always such a charming voice to hear on the radio. And his father was the blueprint for uh, Blofeld, wasn't he? Was he? Yeah, he went to school with Ian Fleming. Blow his father. Blow. I had no idea. <clears throat> Apparently so. Mm. You are full of uh, beautiful little bits of trivia, John. <laughs> may or may not be true. Uh, uh, right, should we talk about our um, our main topic this week? Yeah, please talk away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Milton Glaser, godlike. Not a, not, a, not a window cleaner from the Midlands. No, uh, godlike graphic designer. 
um, of uh, Pushpin Studios fame, New York, a very famous designer from uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, famously designed the I Heart New York logo, amongst other things. Uh, very famous Bob Dylan cover that he illustrated. Um, great bloke. I saw him give a talk um, 18 or 20 years ago at the Institute of Education in London, and it was uh, entitled um, 10 Things I Had Learned. And this is a talk he's given lots of times, and it kind of exists as an essay. Um, so I thought we could talk about some of Milton Glaser's 10 things. We can have a little trip through them and see um, see what we think. They, they each kind of there's, – there's effectively 10 titles, and there's a, a little paragraph or essay that goes with them. So we're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll uh, – We'll work our way through them and mention what Milton's getting at and what we think of what Milton's getting at. So he wrote this 18 years ago, did he? No, I think he'd be, he's probably been given that talk for, for longer than that, but that's when I saw it. I think it's, it's changed a little over the years. The The version I've got here is um, from MiltonGlazer.com, so it's kind of the most recent iteration of it. So he's 88 now. Yes. So he was seventy when when you heard when him. I saw him. Yeah. And was he was he spouting the same things or a couple of them are, are slightly different, you know. And, you know, a couple of them are entirely different headings, but generally he was getting it. I don't suppose his in terms of his career position, it has, you know, it hasn't changed anymore. Like Paula Cher said, in hers, you get to that kind of that age, and you're. I don't. I can't remember the the phrase she used, but you you know you're the kind of wise old oracle, aren't you? Mm. You can't really. I don't know. You're not going to be coming up with anything too innovative, are you? At that age, you're probably slightly set in your ways. Even a a designer like Milton Glaser. Mm. I think it's incredible, isn't it, that these real prominent graphic designers have such. Um, uh, strong philosophies. Mm. Do you think that comes out of them just having to repeat all this f- over X many talks Probably. because there I aren't mean, that many people talking about it? Because because it, definitely in the week, web in the web industry in the well in the web industry you kind of um, you know you get the same talkers they're very much younger yeah. but they tend to spout the same thing over and over again which you know leads you to then not listen to them but um i'm coming to this completely fresh so i've never you know i've heard you you talk about yeah. some people are toxic that that mm. kind of thing um, but a lot of these truisms are uh, eschewed by the um by by leading designers aren't they they're, they're similar thought processes yes absolutely i mean to some extent they're, they're no more than common sense um, in the same way that Paula Cher's talk, you know, the stuff that she came out with, we talked about a lot of that just being common sense, but sometimes you just need reminding of it. Um, yeah. So should we start at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can all take this one on board. You can only work for people that you like. Um, yeah. So... He talk. He says he's not talking about professional professionalism or just liking someone from a professional point of view. He says he's talking about affection. He's talking about you and a client sharing common ground. You know, perhaps your view of life is in some ways similar. Uh, otherwise, you're 
relationship becomes a bitter and hopeless struggle. How true is that? Um, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of these uh, nuggets are born out of um, what we could, what you could call wisdom or just life experience. Because when I was working, you know, in the 90s, we worked for some absolute horrific, <laughs> absolutely mm. horrific characters um, and didn't really think anything of it. We thought that was, you know, part of the challenge. But actually, I wouldn't touch them with a barge pole now. Yeah. Um, but in terms of friendships, well, I don't know if I, 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 I haven't formed any really close friendships with clients. Have you? Um, only you, John. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. Um, again, I think this is one of those things we talked about in the Paula Share thing where she said about, you know, work for free. Um, and I think this is like a, an idealized view of how things can work. If, if you happen to be one of those superstar designers, because you can simply pick and choose who you have professional relationships with. Yeah. But the, the, the main, th- one of the things that I took, uh, took away with reading this is, um, and Paul Lachere as well, is that it's very much a metropolitan worldview um, in terms of like all the philosophy resides around you living in a very small, very urban area where you could socialize and meet and, um, uh, and interact and collaborate with a whole host of different people. Um, I, I live in a village in the middle of Hampshire and the likelihood of that happening would be me having to get in a car, go somewhere, do you know what I mean? It, so that, that opportunity just Is doesn't exist. Is there not exist. a Marks Designers Guild? <laughs> no, there's one in Petersfield, I think, which is only 15 minutes away. But yeah. that, that kind of, even just that 15 minutes gap, yeah. I mean, it's not a case of, you know, going outside into a coffee shop, meeting somebody for a meeting. You know, I, I think these kind of, they do expect a metropolitan living, don't they? Mm. For, to form these kind of relationships that you need to have with the client. Um, but I, th- I think for the, the philosophy of why do you think we come out of, um, you know, why when we're young, we want to challenge, you know, work for anybody or, you know, or, or think that it's good. I think we practice. just don't think we just don't know there's a there's an option. Mm. You know, I don't think you associate work with friendship. You know, you might associate with hoping that you can work with people that you might become friends with. But that working for people that you like. Yeah. That's never really struck me. You work for people that will pay you. I think if I... To an extent. Yeah. If I think about it, uh, all my clients are generally people that I get on with. Um, You know... Is that because you've whittled them down? I don't know. Maybe they just, they're the, they only know about me because I've been recommended by people I know and trust. Mm. But, um, I definitely, I definitely own, you know, when I, when I went solo again, that was my first rule was I don't work for people I don't like. Um, and as soon as I get that feeling, I won't work for them again. Yeah. Um, but I don't know why, you know, um, I guess it's just a stress thing for me. I don't know. It's it's a little bit like those things where you, you know those cases where you take on a job and you really know you shouldn't have, yeah, and you regret it immediately. It's the same with working for people who you know you shouldn't. 
But then that's a thin line, isn't it? In between, um, and he he mentions this later on is is failure or the uh, the the ability to fail in front of your client is is often a, a good thing yes. for for the creative process, if, if you can yeah, call it. I that. mean, not if you're a junior designer. No, exactly. This, this is all highfalutin <laughs> it uh, is. bubble it stuff, is. isn't it? This is exactly what we are not, John. I know. This is not why we set out. Why? Who suggested doing this as a discussion? Number two. Yeah. If, if you, you if go on then. If you have a choice, never have a job. <laughs> well, I'd call this one. Yeah, I'm unemployable. Is that is that the same thing? <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I guess what he means by this is never have a job that feels like work. Yeah, I think you could skip to number nine, which is uh, he mentions in in number nine, which is uh, it doesn't matter. You're, you know, and I've written you're not preparing for death, <laughs> and it is it is easy to forget that, isn't it? Yeah, you're only designing a brochure, website, whatever. It's not important. No. Yeah, that is a a real balance you have to get, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you have to make the work mean just enough. Because if it's if it means too much, it's going to kill you, and if it doesn't mean enough, you're not going to do good work. Mm-hmm. So you have to strike that balance. Uh, number three, this goes very well with number one. <clears throat> Some people are toxic; avoid them. Um, and this is—I don't think this is just a professional thing. Or maybe this is just what he means by ten things he's learned. But I make uh, a real effort not to spend any time with people I don't like it's not always easy in work although I'm lucky enough at the minute that um, there are no that you work alone (laughs) (laughs) and even that can be testing Uh, there are no people I work with that I don't like that hasn't always been the case you know quite often I've worked in studios and there's been someone who's a complete arse Um, but in, in terms of kind of friendship and personal life I just don't have any time for people I don't get on with. I'm not going to spend, you know, too much of my life trying to get on with someone or pretending to get on with someone or biting my lip so I don't say the wrong thing. You know, time is short. He says there's one way to find out if people are toxic. It's basically if you spend time in their company and you come away feeling worse, then... uh, then you should uh, distancing yourself from them. Mm. Yeah, I had a, I had a really uh, a bad one a couple of years ago, and I just wanted to get up off from the table. I had to meet a client and his client, and um, yeah. I disliked both of them so intensely that I just had this this feeling to just walk out and get in my car and go home. And <laughs> that would have been good. Though. I really had to fight that one. <clears throat> Uh, number four, John. Uh, yeah, number four. Professionalism is not enough, or the good is the enemy of the great. Is that right? Yeah, which is quite a weird one because you hear "good is um, grit is the enemy of good" quite a lot, in which that they mean uh, if you strive for perfection, you never get anything done. You know, if you're striving for the perfect design. Um, it's much better to produce something that's good and actually get it out there in the world than to constantly not produce something because you're you're striving for that perfection. So 
he's kind of turning that on its head. Um, and it's because he talks about professionalism as well. So he talks about professionalism as diminishing risks. He says in our industry that you need to take risks. Um, you can't just do the same thing. You can't just kind of approach things in the same way. You need to, if you're creative, you need to kind of do it in a different way. You have to risk things, I guess. Yeah, he can't quite put his finger on it, can he, for all of the 18 years of him trying to yeah. re- rewrite this. But I, t- I, I saw this in a slightly different way in um, – uh, or maybe it's just the way the way I perceived it was um, that he sees that professionalism, as in being a you know professional doctor, mm-hmm. you go to the doctor with a uh, you know sore throat, they give you some medicine to fix it. Um, if you went to if the client went to a designer and every single designer gave them the same thing, um, there would be a very bland world, wouldn't there? a very bland outcome and so he says that you know that it's the ability to fail or to take risks or to you know whatever you however you describe it that um that is at the heart of creating art or design there's a a fine line because he actually says um you have to encompass the possibility of failure (laughs) so it doesn't necessarily say that failing is a you know it's something you need to you know, it's not bad if you fail. He says you need to, there needs to be a possibility of failure. Yeah. Which so, is a really fine line. Yeah. You see you, far too much online about, you know, these kind of uh, TED Talks or uh, essays on Medium about uh, how good it is to fail. Um, most of them, most of them mean is it's really good to fail if you can afford it. Yeah. Or you've got the talent in spades behind you to back, yeah. back it up and yeah. fall back on. Um, you know, I, I think another one of his stories was that he came up with the, I love New York logo in a taxi scribbled yeah. on the back of a napkin or whatever. And Paula shares Citibank <clears throat> is the same kind of thing, isn't mm. it? it? It's not that moment. It's the experience behind it, but that is that kind of highfalutin, you know, rock star designer that allows them to, to, uh, to tell those, anecdotes if that was me telling a client oh yeah no i just scribbled it down on a bit of paper i don't think they'd be that impressed well also it's only the <laughs> successful designers that can tell those anecdotes yeah it? yeah the ones who fail and get sacked and end up uh you know working in a factory not working in design they're not going to tell those anecdotes are they no it's no. uh, it's that kind of history is written by the victors kind of thing oh most definitely graphic design anecdotes are written by the successful yeah, the ones who get paid yeah <laughs> yeah and they can encourage you to work for free <laughs> damn them all so next uh, is less is not necessarily more i didn't really understand this can you explain it to me well there's the maxim isn't there less is more um don't over elaborate don't gild the lily um and i think he his work has been uh, quite illustrative for a lot of um, Milton Glaser's work. So I think for him, that kind of minimalist, um, minimal approach to design just doesn't work. I think he wants to, well, what he says is just enough is more. Um, 
you know, you, you know, you you kind of give as much as you can uh, to a project, or you can you put as much art and craft into a, a design or an illustration that you can possibly squeeze in. Um, obviously, there's a, a point where you have to know where to stop. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm guessing he's he's alluding to the the word less being doesn't make enough effort. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think guess. so. And, he, and you know, he's he's strongly not a a modernist designer. You know, he's not of the Swiss school. Um, his work has always been more um, has more of a flourish than that. Um, yeah, but it's a knowing when to stop is is quite a thing for me in illustration. It's I'm a very bad judge of my own work, and I often have to you know take several steps back and come and look at something the next day or in a few hours time to know whether it works or whether I've done enough or whether it, you know, there's enough merit to it. Um, that's something I really struggle with. Hmm. So then the next one, um, is, is an even more kind of, uh, I don't know. It, it's a it it really this really is the magic here because he's uh, the style is not to be trusted so mm. essentially in this little essay he says uh, don't follow trends but follow the zeitgeist now that really is a kind of pie piper yes. <laughs> suggestion you know it, it, it you really have to be how you know how good do you have to be as a designer or an artist to uh, to be able to pick up on the zeitgeist and how you know lucky do you have to be at a certain time in your life when that either makes you incredibly famous or gets you the right kind of clients or propels you onto something else you know there's for the, for that for that those few amounts of, of times that that happens in your career however yeah absolutely but i think style is is generally kind of created isn't it by the leaders in the industry um so it's those few people at the at the pinnacle of a an industry or a profession that how they do their work and how they lead that that everyone else follows that so again i think that a little bit of that is is him talking from his ivory tower yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, um, you know, often clients latch on to design trends that designers have been banding around for mm. two or three years, haven't they? But if the client wants that kind of style or that kind of work and you're working for them, you haven't really got much of a choice, have you? Yeah. Yes, you can try and persuade them with something else. But if you stick to your guns too much, I mean, he mentioned someone called um, Cassandre. Yes. Uh, and... So they obviously, again, the greatest graphic designer of the 20th century that I haven't heard of. Um, Cassandra did the that classic 1920s um, print of um, uh, an ocean liner head-on, right? That you'll have seen. Yeah, really elegant. Yeah, ocean liner for the I don't know the White Star Line or whoever. That was that's the kind of most famous piece of work by Cassandra. But he sort of then says, you know, that um, alludes to the fact that they got stuck in their ways and didn't change their style and then ended up penniless. But whether that's true or not, I have to explore. But Yeah, and um, that might well be the um, the exception to the rule. You know, a lot of people, you know, will stick with a style and will continue to get work um, because of it throughout their career, won't they? 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I just don't I don't have a style, so um, I am a I'm a magpie. Yeah. I mean, it's with illustration. I think I've got uh, the beginnings of a style, and I sometimes, if I'm struggling with um, an illustration that's perhaps out of my comfort zone, I often think maybe I'd be better off just sticking to what I know. Is that how styles happen? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think you know I can look at a drawing and see see you've done it instantly, which is good, isn't it? That's how it's meant to it be. Is. No? It is. Yeah, yeah, that is good. Uh, the next one: uh, How you live changes your brain. Hmm. I so I've, I'm not sure I get this one either. Either is he saying we need to constantly challenge the brain and not be so rigid, or what, what's he so. trying to say? I think he's saying we should all do those brain training games. <laughs> my pie's just arrived. Thank you, dear. I've got a salute from my wife there. Really? Um, not a slap round the head. No. <laughs> um. So he in in this um version of his 10 things he talks about uh teaching kids the violin from an early age and it actually affects their brain structure in the talk that i heard him give he talked about um taxi drivers and that's a kind of a well-known thing although i'm not sure it's entirely true about black cab drivers in london who do the knowledge kind of develop different parts of their brain because of the way they have to learn it and the way they have to navigate I think that might have been debunked. Um, but yeah, so I think he's talking about <clears throat> challenging um, the norm in terms of your thinking and stuff. And if you do that, it can open up different avenues to you, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. <clears throat> I'm not sure that's a very strong, strong one, but um, yeah, I think that it's basically... You know, yes you can affect the way that you think um or you can change the way that you act by living in a good way is that mm. yeah yeah absolutely uh next one doubt is better than certainty uh yes i quite i kind of like this i think if i get it um I've put, are you sure, Milton? I'm certain I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Um, so there is a, a trap to fall into if you're overconfident. Um, you know, whether it's you instantly think that you know what the client wants and go hurtling off down a route only to realise far too late that actually you're barking up the wrong tree and you've got to do it all again. You know, if you start with a, an element of doubt, <clears throat> it's going to lead you into more critical thinking, <clears throat> examining the brief better, better research, um, and hopefully a better end product. By by being accommodating and learning to compromise, you yes. can make everybody successful. Um, being rigid in your thinking, and I think this follows on from the last one, it will make you it, it essentially unsuccessful. Um, and no, I don't know what what would it make you. <clears throat> Absolute certainty makes for really bad leaders or managers or creative directors because what you then become working under them is someone just carrying out their ideas 
they're not open to the fact that you might be able to actually add something yourself. And they tend to then micromanage and they'll point at your screen and they'll move, you know, move the type this way a bit or move that, change that color. Whereas if they've got a bit more, they're kind of open to doubt, they're more open to the possibility that someone might have a, a better solution to the problem than they do. So I think that kind of absolute certainty makes for terrible leaders in design. Mm. But they're quite often the people who are leaders, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, because that certainty goes hand in hand with the kind of psychopathic arrogance that gets yeah. you to the top of any profession, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, design is filled with people like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not one of them. Well, I don't know if people who used to work for me might say that. Um, I, I think the people that really wanted leading all the time, uh, I found exasperating and there would be very get very short tempered with them if they weren't thinking on their own. I think, I think what you need is, is, uh, like a doubtful confidence. Mm. Um, so you need to be open to the possibility that you're wrong and yet be, and be confident in that thought really. Yeah. I think certainty not, not be, yeah, is not the word be, there, not isn't be it? overawed by not knowing, you know, you can't know everything. So embrace it. I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. Yeah. What, embrace? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> what's the next one? On ageing. I didn't really get this. Um, no, he tells a joke about cabbages and rabbits, which he <laughs> he did tell that joke um, 20 years ago on him as well. It's a good joke. Um, I it's don't, not a bad joke. I think what he's, all he says in it is that nothing matters. Um, yeah. which is kind of like, you know, what, what I'd expect a retired, uh, rather wealthy person to tell me in a speech. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yes. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I think as I get older, I, I kind of realize this, that it's really, and, and, uh, it may come across as the fact that I don't care about stuff I do, but that's not true. It's just, it's I just, just don't apply. Yeah. I don't apply as much importance to it i don't argue the toss as much as i used to um, yeah i will say if i don't think something's right but more often than not i'm just completely ignored so what's the point of wasting my <laughs> <laughs> what is the point of wasting my life trying to argue against it you know well, that's definitely it's something picking the battles with. isn't it that's exactly it you can't win them all um that's certainly something that um I, you know, I think I learned that really came home to me when I worked with you, John, um, because we'd often working with some of the property companies, you know, they'd fight back and, you know, they'd want certain things doing in a certain way. And I think that's when I first realized that, you know, you, you pick your battles, some things you're never going to win and it's better to, to let the client have their head in some ways, you know, and then you can you can win a different battle somewhere else another day. Yeah. But that's something that I don't think you have as a, a young designer at all. No, no. Uh, and on to number 10. Tell the truth. Yeah. Well, this one's, this one is, is, is challenging because, um, it's something that I feel guilty a lot of the time about um in terms of ethics um this one mm. he talks about questioning follow follow your ethic ethical decision all the way through so for example 
I mean, I wrote down uh, if you've got. Um, no, I haven't written that down. I'm reading your one. Uh, yeah, no. So, for example, if you were um, selling organic free trade rope um, and uh, you did a really good campaign for it and then you realize that you're selling to executioners. Um, yes. That is the breaking of the ethical code. And a lot of design and a lot of advertising takes it up to the producer. So, for example, sorry, when I say take it up to the producer, that they take their ethics as far as the producer. Mm. But it's the end. It's the audience. It's the uh, it's the end user as well. That that has to go. What he's saying is it has to go all the way through your work in order for it to be purely honest. Yeah, he's hit the the version of the speech that I heard was much better in this regard because he talked about this kind of slippery slope of declining ethics. You know, you might work for a a, a company that sells something that isn't brilliant, and if you do that, then maybe you you end up working for a company that um, does something that you know if it isn't used in the right way it might be harmful, and then you you start working for the tobacco companies and then all of a sudden you're um, doing advertising for a pharmaceutical company trying to sell a cancer drug that doesn't really work. Um, so it's, it, he talks about this slippery slope, um, but it's all in the about the same thing, about telling the truth and kind of being an ethical designer and about doing good. Um, I think a lot of designers can probably get through their entire careers without worrying about this too much. Lots of designers work in a particular niche where, you know, it just doesn't come up. Um, I know that I worked, I did some design work for a company that sold sniper rifles, which is very much at one end of an ethical um, uh, thing, isn't it? Um, yeah <laughs> and at the time i just didn't it didn't occur to me i was it was my first design job and it, i just thought oh, these are cool uh i was thinking oh, i wonder if i'll get to go and have a go with one um now i wouldn't touch that with a barge pole but that's just 25 years experience i guess yeah my first uh freelance job was british american tobacco yeah there you go um for one of the yeah uh, an office um I I agree with this. I think one of his suggestions is that, you know, should we license or there is an argument for licensing uh, advertising or mm. design. So therefore there's some sort of rigid set of codes. Um, and he says that might bring out the truth, but I, I don't agree with that at all. Because no, I, I think either. if you think that pharmacies are licensed and militaries and governments yeah, licensed, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, the human uh, human race will lie to get yeah, what they want. Yeah, more lobbyists. Yeah. Um, there's a an illustrator that whose work I really like called Holly Exley, and she does um, lots of beautiful watercolor illustrations, and she does a regular um, video blog on YouTube, and her last one was uh, entitled "I Can't Do This Anymore," and she's a vegan and she's talked about being a, a vegan in lots of her other blog posts, but she's also very aware that a lot of her work as an illustrator is for food magazines and for food producers and for um, packaging and she ends up drawing a lot of meat um and she's she's become less and less comfortable doing that and she's decided to stop so she'll finish the contracts that she's working on that include 
having to draw meat products or animal products for her existing clients, but she won't take on any more. So I think that's the brave point um, where there's an ethical line, where, where particularly where it's perhaps quite a personal ethical line, um, where you have to make a decision that's going to affect your income. I mean, that's really brave of her to do that. So all power to Holly Exley's elbow there. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you take out of the whole package of thought and what made you bring it up? What was it? What was that all about? I, it's one of those things that's always stayed with me. Um, I'd studied a bit about Milton Glaser when I was at art college and Pushpin Studios um, so it was quite a really cool thing for me to go and see him. Um, and he, he gave a great talk, you know, he's a proper raconteur. Um, and I think elements of it always come back to me, particularly the stuff about ethics and a lot of the stuff about not working with people you don't like and people are toxic. Um, and that's certainly something that I keep to the fore in my mind just generally in life. Um, and I just think, I I think it's good to kind of question yourself, isn't it? To, to have a, even if they're not your guidelines to have like a little checklist to, to kind of like a little mirror to hold up to yourself to see where you are and what you're doing and how you're doing. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed it because I didn't agree with everything and uh, there's a lot of thoughts rattling around my head and I need to go away and think about some of the, mm. some of his um, statements. Um, and you get the impression that he's an in, supremely intelligent, um, well-educated person, um, but he's not telling you to work one way or the other. So all of these are s- suggestive or hints at what you might want to do um, yeah. or little bits of advice that, um, that we can take away, but we also interpret in different ways. So I, I like that ambiguity about it. So yeah, I shall be rereading it and going off and exploring other bits. Um, Excellent. Definitely the ethical side of it is, it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It really is. It is. And it's one of those things that's really easy to talk about uh, unless it, unless it crops up, you know, if, if perhaps an existing client, suddenly takes a questionably a questionable ethical decision on something i don't know what that might be but that's when it would is very difficult isn't it yeah or if someone offers you a lot of money and you've got the mortgage to pay (laughs) what have you got i've got a roast chicken and gravy pie what have you got i've got a uh a roast chicken and gravy pie. Ah, mine's a Waitrose tender and flavoursome uh, roast chicken pie, fully encased short crust to make up for last week. Mine is uh, Sainsbury's um, and it is fully encased in short crust. We had a, a couple of comments about um, or lack of lids or bases last week. Yeah. Uh, my pie, additionally, is two days past its use-by date. Oh, good. Um, so fingers crossed that yeah. uh, we make it to episode 57. My, uh, mine, mine had sunken like a, like some kind of, it had subterranean collapse. Like a sinkhole. Um, yeah, it's got a sinkhole in it, ready yeah, baked. Mine as well. um, it's, yeah, very gelatinous. Oh, my, very hot. 
yeah, incredibly salty. Paste is not that good. Um, chicken's quite nice. Mm. Yeah, it's impossible to tell what the gravy is, what it's made of. I think you yeah. could put wallpaper up with it. <laughs> um, out of ten? Mm. I nearly said out of seven. I'm going to give it out of seven... <laughs> 4.25. No, um, I, no, the pastry is a bit disappointing and wet underneath. Um, mm. I'm going to give it a, it's going to get a five. Yeah. What's yours getting? My pastry is very firm. No, it does not have a soggy bottom. Um, it's, it's a little bit too biscuity, to be honest, the pastry. Um, and the way that the, the chicken is all chopped up in chunks with, with, as you say, quite a gelatinous gravy does give it the look of cat food. Um, it doesn't taste bad it's got that kind of proper roast chicken taste about it yeah Um, it's going to get a six yeah Yeah, not bad not not enough butter in my one no my beer was good though 1906 black coupage uh, Spanish beer oh delicious well we better call it a day haven't we if I'm to edit this down under six hours (laughs) <laughs> we better had well it was a it was a joy i really enjoyed that like yeah. talking about uh, those yeah sorry pieces. if i sounded a little bit vague on some of my answers i'd only Not read it an hour ago Not at all <laughs> vagueness is uh, doubt is better than certainty john ah very good who said that again <laughs> i don't know i've no idea lowers yeah that'll be it uh right well enjoy the rest of your week john you um, too enjoy your weekend I will. Um, I'll see you on the other side of three weddings. Oh, mate. Yeah. Oh, well, good luck. Good luck with it'll, that. It'll be fine. All right. Okay, well, really good I, to talk to you. Yeah, I'll speak to you soon. We'll do. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.